welcome to our ongoing series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm your moderator, Rini Reed, and our guest today is Justice Ann Burke, who currently serves as Chief of the Illinois Supreme Court. Ann was founder of the Chicago Special Olympics, belongs to a lay Roman Catholic religious order, and was asked by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops to serve on the Lay National Review Board for the Protection of Children and Young People. So good to have you with us today. I'm thrilled to be here, Renee. When it comes to the clergy sex abuse issue, I'm really not sure that the Bishop Foxes can adequately, adequately watch over their own hen houses. Far too many bishops just resist setting up a lay staff tribunal at all. I admire the bishops in Illinois who did do this. Tell us about your experience chairing that lay national review board that investigated accusations of clergy. Well, I was appointed to the board, the original board in 2004, right at the time the crisis began. The bishops were concerned um, that a lay review board of prominent Catholics around the country should be involved um, in helping them uh, in implement the charter that they developed at their June meeting, which called for setting up the Office of Child and Youth Protection uh, and a number of other things. But what they didn't do was um, allow us to uh, have a voice, actually, just do this work. But our board uh, decided that we were going to do our own investigation to see uh, and make sure uh, that we were all on the same page regarding the sex abuse crisis of the information that was happening in 2004 and prior to. So we started interviewing uh, hundreds of people. Um, we interviewed cardinals and bishops, uh, abusers, um, people who have were alleged abusers, victims, victims groups, and psychiatrists who have been in this area, this field for decades. And we came up with our National Review Board report, which had um, a lot of recommendations for the bishops to follow. So you took some initiative on your own as a, as a lay group. Oh, yes, we did. I mean, we were totally independent. That was an interesting piece of it, Renee, because as we proceeded to do our work, we realized that we didn't have a voice in this. Um, we were going to do the work that they suggested, but it wasn't um, setting up the Child Office of Youth and Protection. That was one thing, but the the rest of it was needed to be managed. And um, people like Leon Panetta, Bob Bennett, Bill Burley, others were on this board. Their reputations um, and mine or all of us were at stake here. We're, we weren't going to be considered to be puppets or instruments of the bishops. So we decided to embark on the our own investigation, which we did do. But as we proceeded and information unfolded, we realized that we were in an area of secrecy um, and clericalism from the very beginning. That would be almost impossible to penetrate. But what we did do is hire John Jay College of Criminal Justice um, to do the uh, analysis on how many victims there had been in the last 50 years. 
and how many perpetrators there were in the last 50 years. They were um, helped by former, about 55 former FBI agents that the director of our Office of Child and Youth Protection rehired, Kathleen McChesney. She was the third highest ranking FBI agent when she retired to work for us. She had them, uh, these agents, former agents go into all the dioceses and eparchies around the country to get as much information as they could. And of course, you know, you're at the whim of who you're investigating to get the information. So we knew from the very beginning we were getting what they were going to tell us, but it still was going to be useful um, in, in some sort of an analysis that see with the, the endemic program that was existing around the country. We came up with um, a percentage of, of uh, actually, was one diocese worse than another? No, it was actually kind of an even percentage across the country where these kinds of crimes occurred. And it was endemic across the country of how the cover-up existed. And you would almost think it was a, uh, a way in which they, the bishops had already thought about how they were going to respond at some future time. Because it was ex almost exactly the same. As we interviewed people, we found out they were secret files. Well, we never had access to secret files. Everybody always said that they didn't exist. And clearly in the Buffalo, New York um, expose, which just was this last year, I did have an opportunity to read the entire file. Um, 60 Minutes sent it to me electronically. And in that file was a protocol on how to keep secret files. So there was physical evidence that there were secret files. There was, it was instructions on how long you should keep these files, who should have access to them, how you are to keep them, and when you can destroy them and how you can destroy them. It was a whole protocol. Were you able to determine the root cause of this? Did you ever get to that? What really brought this on? Well, actually, it's not, it's not something that currently was brought on. It's been going on forever. These kinds of crimes have been existing since the beginning of time. Some people are attracted to children. But what we did find is that it wasn't, uh, the majority of the crimes weren't committed by pedophiles. It was another whole group of people, uh, priests, who were not considered uh, under the protocol of pedophiles, but others who had never really knew their own sexuality, uh, never had access um, to experimentation on, with sex. Uh, they entered the seminary at a very early age and never really knew themselves. So, however, when they did become associates, uh, priests, and in a community, they had opportunity to experiment. And the safe experiment was with young males. Yes. Um, and, but it didn't exclude females because there were a number of female victims as well in this situation there there have been over the decades and centuries other sex abuse crises in the catholic church 
and the current one um, in that came came about in 2004 um, was a result of just stupidity uh, really uh, and failure to come into the world um, of that they live in the the church has lived in a, their own world yet they exist in the real world but they really don't none of the laws applied to them they felt they never called the police they never pro provided um, uh, any ac access to therapy for a victim that came to them they just banned them and pretended like they didn't exist and this idea of lay review boards was a result of still keeping the clericalism and control over the situation lay review boards whether they be people that are in the law like myself or former law enforcement people but good good hard-working people i know so many of them we're not trained or they're not trained for criminal activity how to investigate criminal activity. And it's still the perception whether they they were trained for criminal act, to um, investigate criminal activity, the perception by people in the pews or anyone out there uh, reviewing this is that they're under the control of the bishops because they were. Because ultimately the bishop decided whether or not that was a founded accusation or an unfounded accusation. And it, so the lay review board just did what the bishops wanted them to do even though they didn't necessarily think that if there are so many parts of the world where bishops do not do what these bishops did in illinois is there a way for a concerned catholic christian to initiate one on their own is that possible one of their own what one of their own tribunals they should not it should all be with civil authorities uh, it, uh, it, every country has a law um, on, uh, they're different in different countries, but violation of minors is criminal. And it shouldn't, I would, I, I would advocate that every single accusation should go to the civil authorities. I think the problem that I see is that, yes, the civil authorities can take care of punishment of the crime, but other Christians, like myself, are concerned about renewal of the church, reforming of the church. And that cannot be done by civil authorities. That can only be done by the people. Right, but if you weed out the criminals in the Catholic Church, you'll have good men and women and uh, who you can work with to renew the church. You cannot permit someone who's committed a crime against a child to be in the Catholic Church. It should not happen. Well, you have found so many ways of living your Christianity, and one of them was you joined a lay religious order. How did you come to do this, and what does it involve? Well, um, my whole life has been spent on working with people who are vulnerable in society. Um, I mean, I didn't know it as a young woman working with kids with uh, learning disabilities. I, I didn't just, it's it just something I've done my whole life. And the, uh, the Knights uh, and Dames of Malta and the Holy Sepulchre, um, 
are organizations which provide an outlet for Catholics to also help people who are vulnerable in society. For instance, uh, we take care, we, we went on a mission to Lourdes with Malads, people who are um, terminally ill or in catastrophic physical and mental condition, and we pay for their um, going to and care for them uh, to Lourdes for a week. We've done that. And there's other um, charities that Malta deals with. I just, I feel it's important to work collaboratively and not so much individually. I think collaborating with as many people as we can um, to help vulnerable people in our society is important. And that was one way I could exercise through my religion, um, working collaboratively uh, to help other people. Actually a population that I had not ever really focused on before that. It was children and minors who were abused and neglected or in the criminal justice system or people with learning disabilities. I think that collaboration is probably key. I have some friends who got together with others and began cooking meals once a month and taking it to people who were hungry or living on the street and serving them. But it was the collaboration that really built their faith and then the serving to follow through. That's absolutely true. And I'm excited to have you say that because um, how we can renew the church is through collaboration. And I use my fundamental um, background in sports and teams and uh, day camp and programs like that to build a unity of people helping others by um, participating in cooking for people, taking them to. That, that is such a spiritual happening of people working together. And, and if you have a good facilitator, as um, Father Tom Hurley from Old St. Pat says, I'm just the chaplain of all these organizations. And if we had a chaplain to encourage us um, and find spirituality in the work we do in the community, I think we're gonna be far better off. And especially for the young people today. The young people are turned off because of the clericalism and because they're not act, uh, act, uh, asked to be part of the Renew the Church. In, in a way in which they feel comfortable. They would love to participate. Another way is to be in a 5K run for renewing your church and getting a lot of people involved in that and then ending up and having a meal together. Collaborate and, and enjoy your spirituality and maybe through music, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be within the walls of a church. It's, it's the community. We have to get back to the community as much as we can ourselves to show our faith and ask people to join us. And if we just sit in church doing that, it's not, we're not gonna be able to renew. It's a spiritual renewal of your body and soul. We've got to move people beyond the walls. Yes. So many, so many young people today have turned off on church. That is not their way of being a Christian today. And you know what, it's okay. It's all right. It's the way it should be. I mean, I, I our youngest son um, is uh, 23, and he belonged to a youth formation um, foundations at a parish, and they did 
every every week besides doing the liturgy for the mass early in the morning that afternoon they went out to soup kitchens they did things they went they met people they worked with other kids so it's it's helping others it's not just being in church but by being there and revving up with the mass and spirituality but the real work is in meeting people and telling them they're doing a good job or helping them um, what we say to each other is really important and if you don't give people affirmation uh, of what they do that they're doing a good job they're trying real hard then then they're lost themselves we, we really have to build people up you mentioned your youngest son by chance is that Travis yes 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 I read with fascination about your highly publicized court case. I know. I think it was known as the case of Baby T. Yes, yes. And Trav, tell us about Travis. He was born cocaine positive yes. to a woman suffering from drug addiction. How did how did you and your husband get involved in all that? Well, at the time um, that that all happened, I was uh, Governor Jim Edward, Edgar's special counsel on child welfare. And this is how we traverse politics. We may be Democrats, but I worked for a Republican governor and I, I was his uh, special counsel. And in that process, um, we became foster parents because I wanted to see how the licensing process actually worked. And really the only way you can do that is by going through it yourself and it was an, an abysmal mess. And so finally we became foster parents and our youngest next child was 20 years old and out of the house. So we started getting calls to take um, babies short-term emergency, which we could do. We were signed up for that. And as it turned out, we had one baby uh, just for three weeks, a cocaine baby, uh, and he went to a more permanent foster home. And my husband said, oh, we can't do this anymore. It's so hard to give this baby up. Um, but as it turned out, I told DCFS, the Department of Children and Family Services, we would continue doing it. I had everything in powder blue. Why was I going to give that up? You know, and the, the next baby, uh, we got a call it was Travis. He was 10 days old, fetal alcohol, cocaine baby, suffering from addiction and withdrawal. And so we really only thought we would be having him um, in our lives for about three to four weeks until the biological mother was stabilized, we'd hope, um, and d done the services that was required of her under the system, but she didn't. And all of a sudden he was three years old. And all of a sudden, the, it was recommended that we adopt him. Well, we were a little bit older then, and our next child was like now 23 years old. Um, and but we did, and we we made sure that um, we took care of him, uh, even though we never were able to adopt him until he was 18. We were his legal guardians for eight all those years, which was totally against the law. It just violated every permanency plan. In, in the country, but um, he is now 23 himself, graduated from uh, DePaul University, and um, he is uh, works as a part-time police officer, he works security, he likes law enforcement, investigations, and he has his own condo, but he is not without um, learning disabilities. He has had learning disabilities and autistic from the time he was born, however, he's had very good help and very good tutors and he is you would not know because 
the concentration and the work that he's done on uh, being who he is and going to college and taking exams. He's living on his own and he's just, and, and that's the whole point about people helping others. There's no, I mean, we didn't go into this thinking we're gonna have a, an, another child. Out of our five children, four are, uh, are adopted. And very few people knew that. But so it wasn't something that was unusual on our part um, to, to decide to do that. But a lot more people can take children in on short term to give them a safe place, a safe harbor, and um, learn an awful lot uh, about being human. So much of your life has been involved with working with young people. Uh, another way was that you've helped found the uh, Chicago Special Olympics. That sounds to me like a daunting task to undertake. How, how did you do it? How did you make it happen? Well, I was a gym teacher for the Chicago Park District and a college dropout. I had only one year of college in 1963, but in, in 1965, I was working at the Park District with children with learning disabilities. Now, in, in that year, there was no Americans uh, Against Dis you know, Disabilities Act. Uh, there was no special education, no special recreation in the country. Um, children came to the park because I went out looking for them. They were living in their homes. They were never brought out. Some of the children were institution institutionalized. And I started teaching them um, skills, you know, how to throw a ball, how to run, how to jump, which they weren't privy to being able to do because they were not in any kind of school or for a formal program. Um, the president of the park district had come to my park, West Pullman Park in Chicago South Side, and said he had never seen a child that was with the R word before. How many had lived in Chicago and nobody knew then? He asked me, what would you do? And I said, well, what they do for normal children is have end of day camp jamboree at Soldier Field a track and field event. We could do that with our children. So my kids were learning track and field. And he said, okay, that sounds like a plan. Why don't you plan it? So I thought, <laughs> so, but it, it was just a track and field meet, you know, and which I had done. Although I'd always felt, um, you know, deficient, not having a college degree, but the park district, I could, I, I had the ability to have all these wonderful professional sports athletes who were, some of them were Olympic champions and, 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 and teachers to help me put this together. But I wrote a letter to Mrs. Eunice Kennedy Shriver and I attached my proposal to her and said, we're going to put on a citywide track meet for children who have learning disabilities. We would like to know if you could give us some money to do this. Well, she had me come to Washington. I met with her. Now, mind you, I'm just 19, 20 years old, and I'm gonna meet the president's sister. Um, she told me the first thing she said, this proposal is unacceptable. I nearly fell off the chair. She invited me all the way to Washington, my first plane trip, and um, told me my proposal was unacceptable. But then she finished. She said, it's unacceptable because it's only Chicago. I will help you if you rewrite the proposal and make it national. I says, I don't know anybody national. She says, well, I will help you get them. And that's how it began. Wow. 
it must have blown you away. It sure did. It did. It did. So I think so many times we start out doing something that is just within our contained world, within yes. our our vision, but somehow the Holy Spirit gets involved in. Yeah, she she the Holy Spirit always is there. Um, every in my entire life, and what this unacceptable um, meant to me uh, throughout my life is that everything we do is unacceptable because everything we do can be better. Whether we bake a cake, write a brief, or have a track meet, or you're racing against time in this as a, in the swim meet against yourself, so your last timing is unacceptable because you can can do it better. You can hit two more home runs if you're playing baseball. You still can improve yourself. So I think that was a wonderful vision uh, that Mrs. Schreiber never knew she gave to me by telling me that was unacceptable, although it was heart-wrenching to me to hear it. Over the years in my life, I felt myself unacceptable because I wasn't a college graduate, so I went back to college. My husband said, you're really unacceptable. You could be better at helping people who are vulnerable in society if you were a lawyer. So I went back to be <laughs> a lawyer. When I started law school, I had four children under 10. So, I mean, and everything I do today still is unacceptable because it, everything can be better. I guess the Holy Spirit is just driving us through our journey through life and watching over us. I mean, it isn't my idea. Uh, to do these things, but you can do everything better. You mentioned working with Leon Panetta. Oh, yes. We all know him for his political prowess, but few know what a real Christian man he is. Oh. And the things that he does to live his Christianity. He does. He and Sylvia are such gentle, kind people and unassuming. Uh, they just do what they need to do and they their their faith um, guides them and as bob bennett as well being one of the top of the country's criminal lawyer defense lawyers he and and his wife i mean unbelievable good people i've been so fortunate to have learned and uh, worked side by side with them and learned from them we still i mean in, when this um a buffalo new york crisis occurred last year in January, we all got on a conference call together. We're all friends. And we decided that we were going to write a letter to the to the Pope. And we did. There's no limit. We did. But did we hear from the Pope? No. But but you know what? We didn't care. You know, I mean, it's not that we didn't care. But what was important is we did it. I mean, we made that effort. Martin Luther King always said, you never know what's at the top of the staircase, but if you don't take that first step, you never will. And that's a premise that we live by too. So we felt that we needed to write a letter to the Pope, tell the Pope that we're available if they need some help, and we're there for them. It's good for the members of Catholic Church Reform International to hear, because we've written countless letters to the Pope. And once we did get a letter back from a Monsignor who told us that the Pope had received our letter, thanked us for the work that we were doing, and that gave us some little hope. A little that, affirmation that, yeah, that it's a good thing you did the right letter. Yeah, you do what you have to do. In, in spite of 
of everything. You must, if you feel you have to write a letter, or if you have to call somebody, you have to do what your heart tells you to do and what the Holy Spirit is guiding you to do. So I have to ask you, you and I are about the same age. Yes. You're going to bring your current career to an end at some point in time. After you retire, what do you see next for you? I don't, I don't, I see everything. I mean, all the possibilities are, is still doing what I'm doing, but not as in an official way. And I think my whole life, as I said, is collaboration. If I can have people collaborate on a soup kitchen, or if I can have people collaborate of helping a child, just one child at a time, um, I would, that's what I'd be happy to do. I mean, I, I'm not gonna stop. I mean, we only get one chance. This is not a dress rehearsal, our life, right? And um, so I wanna continue with that. I've learned two things from you today. The importance of collaboration if we want to move forward and make something happen and that everything is unacceptable and can be better yes it's right thank you so much for this i so admire the work you have done the work you are doing and i hope that our listeners can be inspired to maybe get out of the pew at church and do something more than just church. There's so much more to be done. The church will follow you, as Holy Spirit will. Thank you so much, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Justice Ann Burke. We really appreciated having you today. Thank you.